Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. The Formula One silly season has gone into overdrive in the last week, with Oscar Piastri being confirmed at Alpine and then rejecting Alpine. He looks destined to land at McLaren for the 2023 season instead, which has cast doubt over the short-term future of Daniel Ricciardo. There's been a curveball in the supercar silly season as well, with Tim Slade set to walk out on the Blanchard Racing Team at the end of the current season. Slade is expected to land at Premier Racing, while the likes of Lee Holdsworth and Zane Goddard are in the frame to replace him at BRT. Speaking of Premier Racing, the newest team in supercars has locked in its Bathurst 1000 lineup. Cameron Hill will join Chris Pither in the Coke car, and Dylan O'Keefe will partner Jimmy Golding in the Subway car. Matt Stone Racing, meanwhile, has signed Jaden Ojeda for Bathurst. He will partner Todd Hazelwood. The Speed Series continued at Queensland Raceway on the weekend with Tony D'Alberto finally breaking his TCR Australia duck with a pair of wins. The other race win went to Audi driver Jay Hansen. In GT World Challenge Australia, the first race went to Shane Van Gisbergen and Prince Jeffrey Ibrahim and the second to Garth Tander and Yasser Shahin. Nathan Hearn clean swept the Trans Am races and Thomas Sargent did likewise in Michelin Sprint Challenge. There's been some movement in the supercar's ownership situation, with around half of what have long been known as the ARG shares in Racing Australia Consolidated Enterprises or Race changing hands. It turns out that 15% was actually owned by Brian Boyd, not ARG, and is believed to have been consolidated by Henslow. In related news, Race says it will make a decision on whether to buy ARG this month. And former supercars champion Rick Kelly has launched a new video series called Hellbent Garage, in which he and son Lex will create unique machines. The series is backed by our good friends at Castro and will debut by Rick and Castro's social channels on August 21. Joining me this week to discuss all that and more is a teammate that is emerging as a surprise contender to drive for Alpine next season, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, there was some national level racing on your doorstep again over the weekend. Did you venture out to the new look Queensland Raceway for a gander? Hello, Andrew. Firstly, just to clear up your Alpine comment there, this is wrong. I will not be driving for Alpine next year. Please see my Twitter for the rest of that statement. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying. But, uh, yes, I did head out to uh, Queensland Raceway for a look. And uh, full credit to Tony Quinn. The facility really has been transformed out there. It's a much more pleasant place to be thanks to the Mm -hmm. upgrades that have gone on since he bought it so obviously a shame that he uh, couldn't be out there while he's recovering from his career cup crash but uh, the investment and the uplift there is uh, is a credit to him that's very good news we'd love to hear about money being spent on motor racing in this country now speaking of money being spent on motor racing let's start our Start our show with with some analysis of this remarkable Oscar Piastri mess. Uh, I tell you what, this McLaren one make series is shaping up nicely next year. They're sure <laughs> signing some uh, some 
top talent for that one. Uh, but seriously, you know, this time last week, it all looked so simple, Steph, and we said as much on the show. You know, Fernando Alonso's shock move to Aston Martin seemed to have solved this three-into-one scenario uh, – sorry, three-into-two scenario at, at Alpine. And as we said, you know, it seemed obvious that Piastri would slot straight into a race seat at Alpine next season. Uh, Alpine went and confirmed that to be the case the very next day. Great, it's all looking good, except the announcement had no quotes from Piastri which raised a few eyebrows. And the first we heard from the young Aussie was him making it very clear that not only was there no deal with Alpine, but he won't be racing for the team next season. Um, it appears that instead Piastri and his manager, Mark Webber, have gone and done a deal with McLaren, um, likely as Daniel Ricciardo's replacement or as a reserve driver role to basically put pressure on Daniel Ricciardo and, and force his hand um, a little bit as to what he does in the immediate future. So Alpine has gone from having three drivers to having one driver. Um, McLaren's list of potential drivers keeps growing despite it having two drivers already under contract for the 2023 Formula One season. Um, but, you know, it does seem like it will be Norris and Piastri in those race seats. Um, from what I'm sort of hearing from my learned Formula One colleagues inside the motorsport network world, Ricciardo was Ricardo will basically have to decide if he wants to fight to stay at McLaren, even if it's abundantly clear that he's not wanted, or does he, you know, either take a payout or not, depending on how his deal is structured and head elsewhere, likely back to Alpine uh, on a little less cash than he was last time he moved to Renault slash Alpine, you would imagine. Um, or he could decide to retire altogether, although that seems unlikely. I'm not sure he'd want to bow out on on the sort of current form that he's in. Um, there's plenty of interesting things at play here, Stefan. So let's run through a few of them. Um, one of one of the interesting things has been this revelation from our from the Alpine side that Alonso basically left the Hungaroring, telling Alpine that he was ready to sign the one plus one deal that they had on the table that would have potentially seen him move to WEC in 2024. And he said that he wasn't talking to anyone else. And then the very next morning. You know, a press release comes out from Aston Martin confirming the Alonso deal and it caught Alpine by complete surprise. Now, that's only the Alpine side of the story, but if that is the case, that's pretty wild, right? It is, but uh, not totally uh, shocking that Fernando Alonso would be involved in such a wild uh, twist of a silly season. Like, his career has been littered with these types of ruthless uh, moves, I think you could call it. So, yeah, clearly Alpine thought they held, held all the cards here with Alonso and Piastri, but it overestimated its position. I think whenever you've got the replacement lined up like they did, it's sort of an always like an awkward one. Like, who would really want to work under those conditions in a normal job when you know this other guy's going to replace you the year after? So... I think Alpine coming out and saying publicly afterwards that age is a factor in all this wasn't a great look either. I think um, they've overestimated the importance of that too because it's not really about age with drivers like this. It's motivation. And clearly yeah. uh, Fernando is still pretty fired up. Yeah, look, he, he does have a reputation as being pretty difficult to work with. You can, as you point out, there is kind of this trail of destruction of the sort of deals he has done through his Formula One career. Um, so it isn't entirely surprising. He obviously wanted to keep going. I think WEC was something that's definitely on his radar, but yeah, maybe having it positioned to him that, hey, it's going to happen like in the in the fairly immediate future. You've got one more year here and then it's probably uh, that's when that move's going to meet. Yeah, look, he might have wanted to have more control over his destiny than that. That would make sense. Uh, I don't think there's any shortage of ego there. So I think the opportunity to sort of um, stick the middle finger up and do something different uh, was one that he obviously grabbed with glee. Um, so we know that Alpine wanted to keep Alonso and that a Williams loan was the likely outcome in Alpine's plan for Oscar. But 
does, does the team still have the right to be pissed at how this has played out? I mean, not just the Nando snub, but Alpine did spend a lot of money on Oscar over the years, you know, and I'm, we're, we're talking about Formula 3, Formula 2, flying a 2021 Formula 1 car around the world. They've been in the States. They've been all over the place doing this completely unprecedented uh, testing program, which definitely wasn't to prepare him to be a McLaren driver. I was in an interview with Laurent Rossi at the AGP earlier this year, and he clearly loves or loved Oscar. Um, It was beyond the normal spin like, yeah, this guy's really good. It was like a passionate... He painted this passionate picture of how they were going to grow together and, you know, he was going to hit his straps right when Alpine was and they were going to win world titles and it was going to be wonderful. So, you know, I do have some some sympathy for Alpine in this situation. It does make junior programs seem a little bit of a waste of time, doesn't it, when they invest all the money on the way through and then the driver ends up somewhere else. So on the surface, it does feel a little disloyal, but at the same time, I think it's on Alpine to manage that correctly, which importantly includes the contractual side of what they're actually obliged to. So yeah, I think when you look at Oscar's uh, progression there and he won the F3 title and the F2 title in consecutive years, and then Alpine's plan from there was to park him for a season with no racing in 2022. And then put him at the worst team on the grid next year at Williams. It had sort of been negligent of Piastri's management in that scenario not to be looking elsewhere at their what their options are. And teams like Alpine bang on about loyalty, but it has to sort of cut both ways. Like they were using Piastri there against Alonso in those negotiations and it's ended up biting them. And don't forget too that like Piastri has been a reserve driver for McLaren all year. Like it's not a brand new relationship that all of a sudden is has started now. So I think the cure. No, but that was a favor. That was a favor from Alpine as well, basically. Well, they left themselves open to creating this relationship that's now uh, taken a dramatic next step, I guess. But the curiosity for me in the timeline of how all this has played out, and it comes back to your point about how much of a shock it was that Fernando is leaving Alpine, is whether the Alonso and Piastri camps actually colluded on this outcome. There's obviously some strong historical links there between Alonso and his manager, Flavio Briatori, and Mark Webber, who's managing Piastri. Do you think uh, it's a possibility? Was there some level of collusion here? I think it's a possibility. I think it's it's unlikely that, um, that you know, Webber and Piastri had no idea that the Alonso news was coming, even the way it was managed in the wake of, you know, Alonso moves, this immediate um, confirmation of Piastri at Alpine, and then a couple of hours later, a very measured and very deliberately worded response from Oscar. Um, it doesn't feel like any of it kind of happened by a huge surprise on the uh, on in terms of the drivers. Um, I think to come back to your point about, you know, whether the loyalty – whether there was enough loyalty there or whether there wasn't or whether that loyalty was being rewarded from the Alpine side, um, I just – I kind of feel like, it, you know, whatever happened, the loyalty was massively overjudged by Alpine. They obviously felt that there was a personal relationship that went beyond contracts and that they could take their time and be a little patient with how they were how they were sort of developing his career because – you know, he was in it for the long haul as well, and he and he clearly wasn't. What I do find kind of interesting, you know, if this was a move to go to Ferrari or to go to Mercedes or to go to Red Bull, I guess you could really um, 
understand the ruthless nature of the decision, it would make a bit more sense because you have to grab those opportunities when they do come along to you. But given it's another midfield team, like is it is it really worth it, Stefan, at least on the surface? Yeah, I mean it's it's a big play to end up at a team that's only won what like one race in ten years. So clearly Oscar and his management would be privy to more info than we are and I dare say the roadmap might look a bit better at McLaren in terms of funding and commitment going forward. An interesting part too, I think, is like they've clearly got the confidence to go up against uh, Lando Norris, which would be a yep. tougher assignment than Esteban Ocon. I think that's pretty fair to say. So I wonder, and in a car, and in a car that does seem tricky to drive. You either get how to drive it or you don't. Yeah, and Lando clearly is well-established in that team, even though I don't think from his comments the car is exactly what he wants it to be at the moment either, but he's adapted to it pretty well. So, yeah, I wonder also whether the bigger play here is is the Mercedes engine in the back of that McLaren, whether um, they're sort of trying to position Piastri for uh, maybe Lewis Hamilton's seat, like eventually get into the top Mercedes team. Yeah, look, it's an interesting theory. Or is it, you know, perhaps to throw something a little more left field out there, is it just to sort of hitch his wagon to Andreas Seidel, whose career seems to be heading in a pretty promising direct uh, direction? I mean, who knows where he could end up? So, you know, you go in there, you work with him, you impress him, and maybe you ride along with him. Does he end up in a Porsche role at some point or whatever? I don't know. That, that, that's They're all theories. I'm sure there is there is a roadmap out there on, on, on how this kind of works. The other thing is that I, I always feel like being in a factory team is a pretty good situation, and Alpine is a factory team. Yes, they haven't necessarily shown signs of being race winners anytime soon, but it is a factory team, and McLaren isn't a factory team. But, yeah, back to the point, there's obviously some sort of plan in place. Let's sort of talk about the PR blowback from this and how it's all played out even just so far. I mean, given the fact that we see young drivers like Oscar, they go – overseas early we don't know much about them here in Australia until they start to rise through the ranks so they kind of have to on their way to Formula One and it was not dissimilar with Daniel Ricciardo who you know did very little racing in Australia before heading overseas they then have to build their brand here as an Australian sports person because we haven't necessarily heard so much about them is replacing Daniel Ricciardo who is wildly popular the best way for Oscar to endear himself to the Aussie fans at this sort of formative stage of his career Stefan? Oh, to be honest, I don't think that should be a concern for, for Oscar and his camp. I think, you know, if McLaren sacked Daniel for Oscar, which it looks like that's what's going to happen, uh, I don't think the that's really an issue with the Australian public. Like, it's sort of, uh, it's McLaren's the bad guy, if anything, out of that. And um, one certainly hopes that Ricardo is going to end up somewhere else on the grid, at least. Yeah, let's have a chat about that. I mean, just a just a, I'm not a hundred percent sure I agree because I think particularly in the Netflix era where this thing plays out as a soap opera, as a TV show, you know, who knows who the villain's actually going to be painted as? But it's I think it leaves him a little bit exposed. It all gets forget forgotten when he's a three time world champion. Obviously, all of this stuff it all goes away when the success inevitably comes because he's obviously very very good. Um, we know that that Danny Rick has struggled you know, in the last couple of seasons, but this is really tough on him. You know, I mean, there's been all these supportive statements from McLaren, um, but the team's going to push him out the door anyway. I guess the financial terms of that will depend on whether he does sign with a team like Alpine and whether that would negate any obligation for McLaren to stump up any cash to break the contract. Stefan, what do you think Dan should do from here? 
Yeah, well, clearly he'd be trying to get the best payout he can. I do wonder if that statement a couple of weeks ago that he put out on social media where he stressed his commitment to McLaren for 2023, whether that was at all related to this erupting. But um, the media is the media is the battleground for this stuff at the moment. Yeah, that's what's been really surprising. I, I, you know, in both the IndyCar situation and here, it has become the way that you draw your line in the sand and set up to potentially whatever legal tussle is coming your way. Yeah, so that was a bit of an unexpected statement of intent from a contracted driver. Like Alpine's statement about Oscar seemed pretty reckless when they knew that that was going to blow up. But um, again, yeah. like you say, that, that's a strategy. Um, but yeah, like so now we look at Dan's options and Alpine would be a logical fit, like despite the history there when, when it was Renault, but... There's a lot to play out. I, I think if I was Liberty Media, the commercial rights holder, I'd be making sure that Dan is still in F1 somewhere. Like clearly he's had a tough time at McLaren, but he's very marketable and he's particularly popular in the US market and there's no US driver at the moment. So they yep. need to ensure he's somewhere. So if not Alpine, then maybe Haas uh, potentially. But uh, wherever he lands, I'd back him in to beat his teammate. Like, if that's Ocon or whoever, I, I don't think his abilities just vanished overnight. And uh, hopefully no. this change is actually uh, good for him. Yeah, and I mean, you, you know, we come back to talking about Netflix again, but, like, you know, if they, if him and Oscar are both in um, midfield teams or if it's Alpine versus McLaren, you know, Ricardo's redemption, that's a pretty strong storyline um, to play on there. I'm still struggling to make proper sense of McLaren's game plan at the moment in terms of, you know, just this stockpiling of drivers. Like I joked about the one-make series, but there's been all this talk about how Alex Pelot, you know, this Alex Pelot saga in the US is related to Pelot being set up for a 2024 F1 seat with McLaren or he's been promised that as part of his as part of this messy divorce with uh, CGR that he's going through. I mean, perhaps there's a theory that Lewis will walk away at the end of next season and Lando could land at, Mercedes and we'll have Piastri and Palo at McLaren. I don't know. Do, do you have any read on how this driver's stockpiling effort might play out? Uh, well, continuing your sort of Netflix talk, these yeah, these guys are all being hired as extras to walk through the back of the back of the uh, shot. But really um, yeah, like not only Palo, but like Award and Herder that are in that that system too. Like there's obviously yep. the rule there where um, F1 teams have to run a rookie in two practice sessions during the season. So. At the moment, it seems like a very big funnel that just goes into a couple of practice sessions and and not much further. But I guess we'll we'll wait and see on that. Clearly, on the marketing side, there's some benefit, um, and it's a carrot too to get someone like Pelot to the McLaren IndyCar team. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, but what are they promising to get <laughs> there, and is it actually ever going to materialise? I guess is is what's becoming fairly interesting. <laughs> Uh, well, from one silly season tangle to another, Stefan, uh, what looked to be such a happy marriage between Tim Slade and the Blanchard Racing Team will come to the to an end at the conclusion of the current Supercars season. Um, from what I understand, Slade he wasn't necessarily offered what he wanted in terms of remuneration from BRT moving forward with a new deal beyond this season and before a new BRT offer arrived on the table, he went and committed himself elsewhere. The talk is that that elsewhere is Premier Racing. Uh, that does make a heck of a lot of sense in some ways. Stefan, if that does prove to be where Slady lands, um, how would you rate that move for both team and driver? 
Yeah, well, I think the whole situation with uh, Slady and the Blanchards is a bit sad, really, because as you say, it was such a happy marriage. But the fact is the performance has dropped massively in the last few months. Yeah. Um, and there seems to be some disagreement in that camp on whether it's car or driver that's that's behind that. I think having three different race engineers in the last three events probably hasn't helped, but the contract stuff has been happening in the background for a little while, so that can't be good for the mindset of the driver, particularly if it was a low-ball offer, as you kind of suggest. So I'm not surprised he's looked elsewhere, and he's a good pickup for Premier. I mean, if they go into next year with Slade and Golding, I think that's a win for them and a good sort of base to, to build their team from. Yeah, I think on the on the on the Slady Blanchard side of things, it was sort of around Townsville where they really had a proper chat about about next year, um, and it sort of didn't quite fit. And you know, Slady actually went all right in Townsville. They showed a bit of form. They had a couple of eighth places there. That was um, that was with Brendan Hogan running the car um, with Mirko De Rosa away. Um, I know there was a little bit of tension around you know bringing bringing Teco Nielsen into the team. For the Ben, given they'd sort of gone reasonably well, but by then I think the contract stuff had kind of played out anyway. So I don't know if it was necessarily, um, you know, directly related to that. But look, I, I agree. I think you know um, it was pretty obvious that Premier was going to go into the market and look for someone fairly established. There was talk about you know if Will Davison did end up losing his DJR ride, would he go there? Um, if Mark Winterbottom uh, wasn't going to stay at Team Eighteen, would he go there? Slade's the perfect driver to come in and steady that ship and give him a a very sensible benchmark to work from uh, and go, right, you know, this is this this guy knows how to get the job done. So we know, you know, if we're giving him the right car, he's going to be at the right end of the grid and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, that's I, I think that if it does play out like that, um, it's a very good move um, for, 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 yeah, for that team uh, and it's a good place for Slade to land. Um, as for BRT, it appears the league contenders at the moment are Lee Holdsworth and Zane Goddard. Interesting options. Um, Holdsy has a lot of experience that could be pretty valuable with Gen 3. Um, and, you know, on a personal note, the paddock is just a better place for having him in it because he's a great bloke. So uh, I could see him being a good fit for what does operate as a very family-style team, a very close-knit team. Um, at the same time, you know, Zane Goddard is very promising. He's getting plenty of Gen 3 miles during the testing phase and he could, you know, he'd potentially be bringing some funding to the table as well, Stefan, what are you hearing about BRT moving forward and, you know, what way could they or should they or whatever go with this thing? Yeah, if, the, if I was those guys, I'd be chasing Lee Holdsworth pretty hard. Like you talk about the fact that he's got that experience and, um, you know, there's a couple of experienced people at the top there at BRT, but most of the crew are still very, very green. Um, yeah. It's kind of an interesting team the way it's being run, like effectively as an arm of the cool drive business it's a bit of a Mm -hmm. different way of going about it and and it's a different beast running a race team versus a big parts company so i think the jury's still out a little bit on on some of their model and the way they're doing it they're looking at adding a super two team as well which um i think teco would sort of run so it would be a little bit separate but um you know you you look at where they're at staff wise and you think gee they're going to need to uh really uh sort of resource up a little bit to, to make that happen so yeah i think when you look at all that, where they're at as a team and running a single car in the main game, like Lee Holdsworth would be a, a great outcome for them. 
Yeah, no, I do definitely agree with that. It's funny you talk about their structure. I mean, they've still got weekend guys that come in. It is sort of old school in that way. And even when I was talking to Tim Blanchard earlier in the year about how they're going to manage the busy off-season building a Gen 3 car, and he said, well, we can bring guys in from the cool drive business, guys that aren't don't actually work for the race team. If we need to shift them across, we can do that, which is kind of interesting. Um, before we move on from talking – about drivers and Premier, uh, the team is locked in. It's Bathurst 1000 lineup. Cam Hill with uh, Chris Pither, Dylan O'Keefe with Jimmy Golding. You happy with that lineup, Stefan? We've spoken before about, you know, Cam Hill deserving a shot at the great race this year. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of those two Triple Eight customer teams was always going to pick up Cam Hill, either uh, Premier or Team 18, which had a seat all of a sudden when James Golding left. So that one's pretty much the only seat to go now, that Team 18 co-drive, isn't it? Because looks like David Wall's going to be at BJR. Yeah. Yep. Yep. No, that that definitely is kind of kind of all that's left. Um, and, you know, a pretty good uh, pretty good seat as well if they, as long as they don't have any power steering issues. Uh, potential to get a result there. Uh, the Juice, Jaden Ojeda back at MSR for a second crack at Bathurst. Uh, he did hit the wall last year, but obviously the team sees some potential in him. And, he, and I have to say, he was pretty impressive in his wildcard starts with WAU this year. Yeah, obviously he went down that path of not being in Super 2 this year but doing a couple of wild cards and he didn't quite get the opportunity to make the same splash that Zach Best did but um, it would have been good experience for him. So he's had a couple of Bathurst there that he's come unstuck in but um, yeah, he's got that bit more experience and hopefully he can uh, do a solid job. Some interesting developments in the Supercars ownership world since we last spoke, Stefan. So around 15% of the shares in race have changed hands with Brian Boyd otherwise known as the pace guy, uh, selling out with uh, Henslow widely believed to be the buyer. Uh, now, the rollout of this was weird to say the least. There was all this tension between ARG and race, and then it emerges that ARG is selling half of its shares via report on V8 Sleuth. That's cool, except Barry Rogers then starts telling other media that there was never any ARG shares. There was just Rogers shares and Boyd shares, and it's the Boyd shares that have been sold. Supercars then confirmed that to be the case with a similarly aggressive rejection of the idea that ARG was ever part of the ownership group. Now, that is clearly the case, but tracing back the confusion from the media is pretty easy because the official announcement last October specifically said, race is a consortium led by Barclay Nettlefold together with Australian Racing Group and Henslow. So why it was so aggressively reframed like the media was stupid for thinking ARG was ever involved is anyone's guess at this point. But anyway... It's also emerged that Race has an option to buy ARG. Um, that was part of the original um, sale, and we'll make a call on that this month. Stefan, would that be in any way a sensible thing to do? Well, it would give them control. I think that's why they'd do it. It's not like they'd be buying a, a hugely profitable money-making machine, but they'd have all the chess pieces to move around as they'd like, uh, including obviously Trans Am, which they might like to keep a lid on the way that's sort of going at the moment. And and on the other side, it would probably give the AIG guys a way out, um, you know, if they're burning too much money doing what they're doing. If the stand deal disappeared for whatever reason, that might be a neat outcome for them. But So it, it sort of makes sense from a couple of perspectives. But when I look at everything going on, it feels like race just needs to knuckle down and concentrate on doing what they're trying to do at the moment. Like it needs to start delivering on some of the promises it's made around the marketing side, controlling the Gen 3 politics and ensuring the sustainability of teams. Like, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of good stuff happening in the background too and more to come out, but concentrating on their own ship I don't think would be a bad 
outcome. And you could say the same of, of Rogers and, and race too. Like if they solved their 15%, everyone could just get on with with making their own show the best it can be. I think a little competition between them is probably not a bad thing. I mean, race ending up with a monopoly on all the categories, I'm not really convinced would be great for motorsport. No, I, I agree with that. And, you know, you talked about them having all the chess pieces, but where do they really move them that's any different to now? We talked about this the other week, you know, this idea that there should be more cohesion between the two. Aside from letting your Shane Van Gisbergen's go and drive a Trans Am car, how does it work? There's there's this stand deal, then there's this Fox Sports deal, and there's all these all there's all these bits that don't actually fit together at all. So would we really be able to see anything really different in terms of dovetailing the ARG world and the supercars world? Not a hundred percent sure. All right, let's take a look at what's been happening around the world. It was a Kiwi 1-2 in the Music City Grand Prix in Nashville with Scott Dixon coming from 20th on the grid to win ahead of Scott McLaughlin and Alex Pillow. The win was the 53rd of Dixon's career, which moves him ahead of Mario Andretti and into a standalone second on the all-time winners list. Francesco Bagnaio won an exciting MotoGP race at Silverstone from a hard-charging Maverick Vinales while Aussie Jack Miller finished third. A title contenders Fabio Quattararo and Alege Espargaro were eighth and ninth. The former serving a long lap penalty while the latter was nursing sore feet after a violent high side during FP4 and Remy Gardner finished 18th. Kevin Harvick snapped a 65-race winless streak in the NASCAR Cup Series with victory at Michigan International Speedway and at Road America, Philippe Albuquerque and Ricky Taylor took victory in the IMSA race. All right, Castro mailbag time. Stefan, uh, Glenn Sanford says that with the likes of F1 using sprint races and NASCAR racing on dirt, Supercar seems a little stuck in its ways. Is it being too conservative or is being too conservative holding Supercars back from reaching a younger audience? And what format could Supercars borrow to spice up the racing? Your thoughts on that, my friend? I think in terms of formats, when you look at what they do with qualifying and, and the different race lengths and the tyres and all that stuff, they, they do a fair bit at the moment to mix it up but i guess looking further outside the the box which is really what the question's getting at i was surprised that even in the pandemic midweek primetime racing never happened like that was james warburton's vision for sydney motorsport park when they when they put all that lighting in and i think to have like that midweek night racing in like a big bash type format has some has some merit at a circuit like SMP where it's pretty hard to get fans out to anyway. So it was so close. I think it was 2020 in Darwin. They were so close to doing it, and then there was a lot of talk it was going to happen at SMP mm. during that that quadruple header as well. Yeah, but it's never quite uh, got over the line. Yeah. So I think even like just to really try to frame it as something different, like even if it was a preseason showcase, like not next year because they won't have any cars built, but in the future, you know, you run a bit of a preseason test at SMP, do all that media day stuff that tends to happen anyway, but then run a yep. bit of primetime racing on a Thursday night, you know, mix up the grids, the formats, whatever, and have it live on seven and just really try to kick off the season with a bang there when there's no sort of footy and all that other sports content at the start of the season. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Like, I, I actually think we have too many formats um, as it is, you know. So I, I think there is some out-of-the-box thinking because it seems to be constantly changing. Like you really have to go through the sub-regs every round to go, right, what tyres, how many sets, what qualifying format are we using, what is qualifying format one, I've completely forgotten, 
whatever, all that stuff. What we do have is lots of circuits with different layouts. And particularly when we were doing those back-to-backs, it's probably less of an issue moving forward. But there was always a reluctance to kind of utilize that. I mean, there was the West Circuit experiment at the Bend, which was kind of interesting. Um, But, you know, then we went to Sydney Motorsport Park and raced on the same track. 100,000 times in a row. Um, Sam Shaheen was actually telling me last week at the Bend that he'd love to see supercars on the East Circuit, which is apparently a real roller coaster. It's kind of the it's the bottom part of the, the GT layout, the 7.7K layout. So maybe that's where we could see some more um, flexibility given, you know, we do have some facilities that would allow that. All righty, let's hand out some Castrol Stars of the Week. Stefan, this week it was an easy choice for me. Tony D'Alberto is my Castrol Star of the Week. Um, he's a TCR Australia lifer. He's done a lot of work to get Honda Australia involved in the series. Um, so to see him finally grab a couple of race wins was just awesome. He's one of the good guys in motorsport, is TD, so I genuinely couldn't be happier for him. Uh, plus that Civic in the yellow and white livery is just gorgeous. So never change that TD. It's fast. It works. Leave it. Stefan, who's your star? Well, that's a, that's a really good pick, AVL. It was great to see TD win. Like he said to me on Friday, he really wanted to win TCR's 50th race. And I think he went out and won the 49th and the 51st. So he actually <laughs> he actually missed that one in the middle. But uh, we'll forgive him for that. Uh, that's great. Uh, my Castrol Star of the Week was another Speed Series standout, Jet Johnson. I thought Jet would go pretty well at Queensland Raceway, being his home circuit. He's done a few laps there. But to be second for the round behind Nathan Hearn was was outstanding. And he ran door-to-door with you know, Brody Kostecki and looked pretty comfortable doing it. So he's clearly got some talent there. And, and also he showed a bit of humour in the TV interviews afterwards, which uh, is clearly in the genes too. So uh, well done to him for that. Very, very good choice. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe, and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast. And we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport news. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here. And yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 W Racing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.